Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite the rest of us to take our Bibles and turn to the gospel according to John, John chapter 2, <clears throat> this morning, be reading verses 23, 24, and 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so guide us by your holy word this morning. And may your word have its perfect way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever read a book, watched a movie, listened to a story, and as you followed the plot, something surprising happened? Something happened that you did not expect. You weren't ready for it, and it made you say something like this. I didn't see that coming. The verses at the end of John chapter 2 are a twist in the plot, and we haven't even gotten that far in yet. So we're only in John chapter 2, the end of John chapter 2. We haven't got very far in the plot, and these verses are here and are meant to make us say, I didn't see that coming. Can you believe it? Up to this point in the book of John, there have been two main reactions to the person and work of Jesus. So the first main camp is the camp of the disciples. And how do they respond? How do they react to Jesus? Well, John 2, 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. I'm sorry, just go back verse 11. Jesus did, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Or verse 22 in John chapter 2. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there's one camp, the camp of the disciples. They were believing in Jesus. They were those who beheld the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, who rightly received Him, and believing in His name, they were given the right to become children of God. The second camp 
is the camp we've just read about in the previous text when Jesus was clearing the temple. There were these Jews who questioned the authority and the truthfulness of Jesus. This camp includes the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leadership, those who were prominent and oversaw the Jewish people. While the disciples were in the camp of those who believed, the Jews, this Jewish establishment and Jewish leadership, were part of a camp that did not believe in Jesus. But now we have a reaction that can be perplexing. Here are those who it says believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. There's something missing, isn't there? This is something different. We have not seen this up in this gospel to this point, but it's something that we need to understand going forward because it's something that we will continue to see in the gospel of John over and over and over again. What is going on with these people? They appear to be in neither of the two camps. This morning, I want us to understand first what these verses are saying and then draw out some implications from this text. So let's first start with what seems to be maybe unimportant information or periphery information, but I think absolutely essential for the context of what is going on, not only in the Gospel of John, but also in our few verses as well. John sets the scene, and he's not merely telling us where Jesus is or what is going on in the surroundings of Jesus, but he helps us see how this setting is actually crucial to understanding these verses. So what is the scene? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's the scene. Jesus is still celebrating the Passover feast. Remember, the Passover plays a prominent role in the book of John. So we see John bring up the Passover over and over again. And John restating the scene is a remembrance of its importance. It recalls why the Jews celebrate the Passover. It was a remembrance of the tenth plague that God used to judge the nation of Egypt. Remember that plague where all the firstborn were going to die. The Lord was going to pass over the land. All the firstborn were going to be killed in Egypt. But the Israelites were told by the Lord to take this lamb, a lamb, to kill that lamb, to eat that lamb, and then to take some of the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. And with that blood smeared on their door frames, they would be shielded from God's judgment when the destroyer passed through the land. They were spared. They were saved. It was through this final plague that God rescued, God redeemed, God delivered his people from their captivity in the land of Egypt. God brought them out by his mighty hand. He conquered their captors. Interestingly enough, do you remember the Exodus? We've gone through that, but I wonder if you remember this. Go back to Exodus 4 for a moment. Exodus 4. Exodus 4. 
Exodus 4, verses 30 and 31. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So Moses and Aaron were given signs, right? And they did those signs in the sight of the people. And then verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So Aaron and Moses did these signs. The people believed. But there's still a problem, isn't there, in Exodus? There's still a tension. They believed, but they were still in Egypt. They were still in captivity. In fact, right after this, Pharaoh's not too pleased with Moses and Aaron, and he hardens their labor. The Lord does visit his people. The Lord does bring his people out of Egypt. He brings them through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And then what happens? If you'll have your Bibles there, Exodus 14, verse 31. So the Israelites had just walked through the Red Sea on dry land with a wall of water on their left and on their right. After their safe passage, the water fell down upon the Egyptians, drowning them in the sea. And then verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There it is again, this belief. And now it's this belief in their freedom. The Lord had saved them from their captors. Their captors have been destroyed. Their captors have been overthrown. Jesus is the Redeemer, the one who frees and rescues those who are held captive by sin and death. He is the true Passover lamb who will shield his people from the wrath and judgment of God through his shed blood, covering his people. But I wonder, do we see the emphasis? Do you see what's important? Do you see what the Passover and the Exodus hinge upon. They hinge upon the saving and redeeming action of the Lord, what the Lord does to save his people. It's about what God does, about who God is. Think of him, contemplate him. How difficult is that for us, who often our first thought is of ourselves? Take this little test. This week, who do you think more about? Do you think more about God or do you think more about yourself? We should be those who contemplate God, who contemplate Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves us. The Lord is the one who reigns forever and ever. So we sing to him for he has triumphed gloriously because he has done it all. If you're still in Exodus, Exodus 13, 8 now. Exodus 13, 8. 
this is describing the feast of unleavened bread that went with the Passover. And it says something very interesting here. Exodus 13, verse 8. So they're having this feast of unleavened bread, and, and Moses now is going to tell them why. Why are you doing this? Why do you have this feast of unleavened bread? Exodus 13, 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Did you hear that? It wasn't because of what I did to get myself out of Egypt. It's because of what the Lord did to get us out of Egypt. That's the only way that we get out of Egypt, what the Lord does. Now here is this context for our verses then in John. He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. When they were to be celebrating what the Lord had done, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. Jesus was performing these signs in Jerusalem. These could very well have been miraculous signs. People saw the signs. They believed. And maybe they even believed with a faith like we see in Nicodemus. So just look there in John chapter 3 for a moment. We'll get to this, Lord willing, next week. But look at what Nicodemus says to Jesus in John 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Could be very well that these people believed similarly to what Nicodemus believed. And think about that. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. What great success! After all, isn't that what we want? Don't we want many people to believe in Jesus' name? To us, it looks like great success. Many people, more people, Jesus, things are going great. Do you see all the people? Do you see how many people are believing in your name, including perhaps in your authority? They very well may be believing that you are the Messiah, that you are a man sent from God. Does it matter how they got in? Does it matter what they really believed? Does it matter if it was true faith or not? What to the world would, would, have, would, have, would have looked like great success in their estimation, in Christ's estimation, was not success and was not progress. Our verses are set in contrast to John 1, 12, which says, But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now when we read these verses that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, it's set in contrast to that verse. And we know it's set in contrast because of verse 24. Our, our minds quickly get reoriented, don't they? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Wow, amazing, great, but Jesus, something's off. Something's not right. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. 
John uses a play on words here. So, uh, if you would look here in verse 23, many believed. That word believed, and then later, did not entrust. Those two words, believed and entrust, are the same word. People's faith and belief in Jesus is met by Jesus' lack of faith in their faith. They were believing in his name, but he was unwilling to believe in their faith. Their faith and their belief were judged by Jesus to be untrustworthy. How could Jesus do this? Why would Jesus do this? Reading these verses might tempt us to act incredulously towards the Lord. Why does he not entrust himself to these people? Isn't that Jesus' job? How dare he refuse them? We're given divine, inspired, infallible, and inerrant reason as to why Jesus in his righteousness would not entrust himself to those who believed in him. He knew all people. And this is where we might struggle because we could only have a category for Jesus as a therapist. This doesn't make me really feel good. This doesn't sound very empathetic. This isn't the Jesus who I've imagined in my mind. Jesus, knowing all the people, knowing all people, though, is for our benefit. It's for our good. This isn't a knowledge of mere information. It's a deep, thorough, complete knowing of a person from the inside out, a knowing of people's hearts. He knew what was in man, particularly he knew the old man. He knew they were in Adam. That is, he knew that they were in sin and in bondage to their sin. He knew their minds, their wills, and their affections. It's a knowledge of character and motivation. He knew the many who believed in him, and he knows all people. And look at what it says here. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He didn't need people to give him information about what was in man, about what is in us, in order to sway his opinion about us. He knows what is in us, and he knows what's in us because he has known us from the beginning. Here, the divinity of Christ shines through because he himself knew what is in Mankind, everyone. Jesus knows what is in us, what's in our hearts, because of his all-seeing perception. He sees your life. He sees your heart. He sees your mind. There is nothing about you that he doesn't know. In fact, Revelation 1.14 says of Jesus, his eyes were like flames of fire. That is, his penetrating gaze is inescapable. And the hidden depths of every heart 
lie open to his side. He sees through all the facades and always sees everything in your life accurately. Where would we like Jesus to look? So if Jesus has this all-seeing perception where he sees everything, where would we like Jesus to look? Jesus, look out there. Look out there in the world. Look out there over all the wickedness and the evil that's happening, the destructions that is out there. Jesus, I'm okay if you look out there, but there's no need to look in here. We've got it all together. We're okay in here. But Jesus' all-seeing perception looks everywhere, especially in his church. This is not a message railing against the world, but it exposes its relevance to us. In these verses, Jesus' supernatural insight and foreknowledge are made evident. And now we are faced with the question, if Jesus knows what is in man, what is in man? What does Jesus see here in these people that leads him not to entrust himself to them? What is it that Jesus' all-seeing perception sees? Well, I think he sees three things. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful, but number one, Jesus sees superficial belief. Jesus sees superficial belief. If you were to go to the gospel of Mark chapter four, Jesus there tells a parable of a sower who went out to sow seed. And some of those seeds sowed by the sower fell on rocky ground. And instead of that seed, It did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Jesus explains these verses a few, explains this truth a few verses later by saying, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I would dare say, I go on a limb here, superficial people probably repel us. I mean, do you want to hang out with someone who's superficial? Like, you're like, hmm, they're really good company. I love spending time with superficial people. There are not those who we think make ideal friends. Maybe we even despise superficiality. Jesus sees superficial belief, a surface belief. It doesn't grow down deep. It doesn't penetrate the soil. It's easily scorched by tribulation and persecution. Would Jesus entrust himself to such a shallow and sham faith? Superficial disciples could not perceive the significance of what they saw. And therefore, they did not penetrate into Jesus' real identity 
and entrust themselves to him entirely. This is what we miss. Jesus not entrusting himself to those who believed in his name because he knew that they were not entrusting in him entirely. It was not that they had completely given themselves to him and he refused. It was a flimsy faith. It was a faith without any depth. A lack of depth in the truth of who Jesus really was. Jesus made a clear distinction between those who were superficially impressed because they saw bare signs and those who penetrated beneath the surface and grasped the truths that were signified by those signs. A superficial faith embraces a caricature of Christ. Not the true Christ, a caricature, an imaginative Christ, a Christ that really isn't the truth about Christ. Is your faith superficial? Is it shallow? Does it lack depth because it lacks the fullness and the gloriousness of all that Jesus Christ has done and all of who he is? Is it shallow because it hasn't plumbed the depths he went through and endured to save people from their sins upon the cross? I hope saying that Jesus sees superficial faith would make us want to run away and be a warning sign. You don't want superficial faith. You want to run away from that. Don't let that be part of your life. How do you do that? How do I get, get over superficial faith? I don't want that in my life. And so maybe if you hear the warning this morning and you're like, I want to run away, help me do that. Here's a good starting point, I think. Read about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ every day. And I think as you do that, the depth of your faith will grow. Jesus sees superficial belief. But two, Jesus also sees, I don't want to lose you here. It's going to be a different word than what you're used to. Jesus sees spurious belief. Spurious. I'll spell it for you. How about that even? S-P-U-R-I-O-U-S. Spurious belief. What does that mean? I don't use that word. It means inadequate. It means not true. It means not genuine. It means inauthentic. It means craft single faith. Because I don't know about you, but craft single is definitely not cheese. Something else, but it's not cheese. I know that. So that's what this spurious belief is. It's inauthentic. It's inadequate. It's not true. Now, it was faith to some degree, but it's not faith that ultimately matters. It's saving faith that ultimately matters. Everyone has faith. Everyone believes something. But what matters, the only thing that matters is saving faith because saving faith brings with it forgiveness of sin, freedom from the dominion of sin and death in your life. Only saving faith means you have received the gift of eternal life. Only saving faith means salvation. This is not faith 
in faith, but faith in Jesus, in his person and his work. It's not, I believe my faith is real because I believe it, but it's, I believe in the real Jesus because of what he has done to save me. Many who appeared to believe in Jesus were spurious, inauthentic converts whose faith was generated in no small measure by the miraculous signs he was doing. Apparent initial belief may in due course turn out not to be genuine faith at all. Jesus looked for genuine conversion, not enthusiasm for the spectacular. Is there may be need right there for like some lamenting. Do we in our day and age, do people in our day and age, maybe people who even claim to be Christians, have more of an enthusiasm for the spectacular than enthusiasm for the cross and the empty tomb? That is what I want to know. That is what I want to see. Jesus. Appearances might sometimes look good, but appearances can be deceiving. Jesus is not misled by appearances, even the appearance of faith. You remember when the Lord was directing Samuel to choose the next king of Israel, and he was brought to the family of Jesse, and Jesse had all of his sons pass by him, and each son looked maybe better than the next, and Samuel is seeing these young men come by him, and the Lord says, nope, not this one, nope, not this one, nope, not this one. And Samuel's like, why, Lord? All these, these men, they look tall, they look strong, they look handsome. Why not these men? What does the Lord say? I don't judge by appearance. I judge by the heart. He is the one who searches and tests hearts. Are you trying to keep up appearances? Are you trying to clean the outside of the cup while the inside is dirty? Are you trying to whitewash the tomb that's full of dead man's bones? It's tiring to keep up appearances. And at the end, it's of no use anyways because Jesus knows. Jesus knows if it's inauthentic faith. He knows if it's spurious faith. He knows if it's merely about keeping up appearances. If you're keeping up appearances today, you don't have to do that anymore. Because there's good news. And this is the good news. This is number three. Jesus sees sinful hearts. Jesus sees sinful hearts. Does that sound like good news? (laughs) 
hearts dominated and held captive by sin are separated from God. They are hearts at enmity with God. They are enemies of God. They are dead and lifeless hearts. Hearts that are completely unable to move toward God. That's the worst news in the world, but it leads us to the best news in the world. You see, salvation is not about us establishing a relationship with Jesus. It's about Jesus establishing a relationship with us. Do you get that? It's not about us establishing a relationship with Jesus. It's about Jesus establishing a relationship with us. What is necessary? What is primary? What makes all the difference? Jesus entrusting himself to lost and ruined sinners. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to us because of what we do, as if it's all upon us, if it's about us making our way to God. This is the grace of God and salvation. It's not because of anything in us that Jesus Christ saves us. It's all of grace. Even faith is a gift from him. It's not about us moving toward him first. It's always about him first moving towards us. And this is the beauty of this. This is the beauty of these verses. This is where we find our assurance. We find our assurance of salvation. The absolute certainty that we know we are his, not by what we do, but by what he has done. If you're struggling with assurance, am I saved? Do I know the Lord? What's going to bring you comfort this morning? Is it going to be, look at all that I've done for the Lord. Because let me tell you, all that you've done for the Lord, you've equally not done anything for the Lord. <laughs> but if it's all about what Christ has done, and that it's him who has a, uh, is the assurance of our salvation, then there's absolute security. There's absolute hope. There's absolute joy. I want us to look at a few other verses here, just at the end. Matthew chapter 7. Quickly, Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21. Here's a, a warning. A warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, you didn't do enough. No. What does it say? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sometimes when we talk with people to determine if they're a Christian, we might ask them a question like this. Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? 
Perhaps we should change that and should begin with a more important and more necessary foundational question. Does the Lord Jesus Christ know you? Have you been called by him? Have you been convicted through the work of his spirit, of your sin, so that you repent of your sin? Has he given you the gift of faith so that you trust in him and in his death and in his resurrection, that that's all that you need to forgive you and save you from your sins and give you the gift of eternal life? He knows what is in man, and he died to conquer what is in man and bring us to God. Jesus graciously entrusts himself to those who don't deserve it. But he entrusts himself to those to whom he calls. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The order is so important there, isn't it? I called them I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is calling today. He is calling out to sinful hearts, hearts that are dominated by sin, and he is saying, you no longer need to stay in your sin. Come to me. You will find forgiveness. You will find mercy. You will find grace. You will find love, you will find joy, you will find peace. Jesus knows what is in man. He knows what is in you. And the glorious truth is that he can take what is in you and change it and transform it for his glory. Father, thank you for your word, which comes to us, and teaches us, and trains us, and speaks to us again of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we need to hear it, and how we desire to revel in a great truth this morning. Look at what Jesus has done to establish a relationship with us. Look at what Jesus has done to entrust himself, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, to us. That we are those who now belong to him. Father, if there's anyone today who is still dominated by a sinful heart, that it's been about keeping up appearances, that it's been more about them, that it's been a life of, of living in sin. Today you would free them. Call them to yourself. Give them the gift of faith and eternal life. Give them the right to become children of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.